Lord Jesus, uh, we do thank you that you are with us and that you have, um, you have a perfect kingdom that is coming. We know that no matter what, any earthly kingdom that we are part of is never going to, to measure up to your perfect kingdom. And uh, that's true, whoever is president, Lord. But we thank you, Lord, that our true citizenship is in heaven. And we thank you that we can look forward to that and that we can uh, get a taste of it even now in the present, in how we live and in our relationship with you. And God, I pray uh, that however we're feeling right now about politics, that you would give us the ability to shift our attention right now to your word. Um, I pray that you would give us a, a sense of uh, anticipation about what we're going to look at and, and what you want to reveal to us through it. I pray that you would give us insight into uh, what we're about to read. And Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be over uh, everything that we, we talk about this morning. And uh, help us to attend to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we're going to be looking at Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. If you have a Bible, I definitely encourage you to follow along in that. Uh, and what we're looking at is, well, this will be another parable in our series, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like, uh, the parables that start with that phrase. And this, this is often called the parable of the wedding banquet. So, starting in verse 1, chapter 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, so first off, let's talk big picture here. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet. So I want us to take a moment to think about what that means. Now, we have to be careful when Jesus tells parables not to assume that every single thing in his parable has this exact correspondence to God and in his kingdom. He's using similes, right? He says the kingdom of heaven is like. You know, it's not necessarily exactly like. But there are things that I think we can conclude about the kingdom of heaven based on this idea that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet. And I want to suggest two major things, two major things that I think we can really count on. And the first thing is that the kingdom of heaven is like a party. 
It's like a party. And it's not just any party, right? It's an extravagant party, okay? This is a, this is a party where the host goes all, all out, right? One thing's for sure in this parable, the king is supposed to be analogous to God, right? And so the, the king is putting on this extravagant party. He's going all out, not holding anything back. And two, the kingdom of heaven isn't just any party, but it's a specific kind of party. It's a wedding party, right? So it's a celebration of a permanent union. Because that's what a wedding is, right? Or at least that's what it's supposed to be, right? It's the celebration of a till death do us part union. And in the kingdom of heaven, there's no death, right? So this is a celebration of an everlasting union. And specifically, it's the celebration of a union between God and us. And what I want to say this morning is that I believe that, that, does, that union between God and us is ultimately what each one of us really desires deep down. Uh, all of us have this desire within us for something that the world on its own can't give us. There's an amazing quote uh, that I absolutely love, and it's from a guy named Bertrand Russell. And if you know who Bertrand Russell is, you probably think it's a little weird that a pastor would say, I love this quote from him. Uh, because Bertrand Russell was a British philosopher and mathematician who was one of the 20th century's leading proponents of atheism, the idea that there's no God. Uh, and uh, he, he, he wrote a lot, and a lot of what he wrote was trying to argue that the idea of God didn't make any sense and um, that people shouldn't believe in him. Uh, but he has this incredible quote where he confesses to having this deep desire for something that the world can't give him. And this is, uh, there he is, Bertrand. He said, the center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains, something transfiguring and infinite, the beatific vision, God, I, I can't explain it or make it seem like anything but foolishness. So he's, he's, he's saying that he has this deep desire, but he's saying I can't make sense of how what I want could actually even be real. But he had the desire. And I believe that what he's expressing there very eloquently is a desire that we really all have, uh, which is this desire for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's, it's, it's the real party that we long for, the union of our souls with God. So the kingdom of heaven is an incredible party, uh, but what Jesus tells us in this, par in this parable is that not everyone who's been invited to the party actually comes to the party, right? And that's actually a terrible offense against the host. And when we read this parable with our modern eyes, I think it's easy for us to miss just just how much of an incredible offense it is against the host. Uh, but I'd like us to get a sense of this morning how much of an offense it is. So we're, we're going to walk through the passage looking at that. Uh, first of all, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And I want us to focus in on that word prepared for a moment. Okay? Now, as any of us know who have had a hand in planning a wedding, it's a lot of work. Right? It's a ton of work. And as hard as it is to put a wedding together these days, think of what an incredible task it would have been in the ancient world. Right? I mean, personally, I think that making a decent dinner for myself is a, is a pretty huge effort. 
Um, but in our day, we have it relatively easy. We, can, uh, we just go to the supermarket and you can find ingredients from all over the world. You can go on the internet and you can find recipes step by step. This is how you do things. But in the ancient world, if you're going to throw a, a wedding party, you can't do that stuff. You don't have a supermarket to go to. You can't go on the internet. As far as I know, you can't call somebody and have them come and cater. Right? You basically, you have, it's you, and if you had them, servants, uh, have to put this whole thing together. And weddings in those days, it wasn't just for one day. It was actually for like a whole week. And so you're not just preparing one meal. You're trying to feed a whole bunch of people for a long time. So preparing a wedding, huge undertaking. So imagine you're the king, you want to honor your son with a great wedding party, and so you start to, start to prepare this extravagant shindig, you know, despite all of the work involved. You are all in. Now verse 3, he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Now, it's easy to miss how disrespectful this is. I mean, certainly on first glance, it seems disrespectful to turn down a wedding invitation, especially a wedding invitation from the king. But it's more disrespectful than we realize, because in those days, it was custom to do something we would call a double invitation. So the first invitation was kind of like the invitations that we send out now. You know, you get the invitation and you RSVP. In those days, the servants would go out and they say, hey, well, this wedding is going to happen. Are you going to come? And people would say whether or not they were going to come. The second invitation was when everyone went out and said, okay, everything's ready. Now it's time to actually show up. So the fact that verse 3 says that these people had been invited to the banquet suggests that they were actually refusing the second invitation. Right, so these are people who had already RSVP'd. And yet when the time came for them to actually come, they refused. And it doesn't even say that they refused, you know, because a loved one had died or they were sick or any reasonable excuse. It says they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. So these people are being summoned to this extravagant party at the home of the king, something that they already said that they were going to go to, and they're distracted by everyday concerns, by business. And I've got to take care of my field. And then the, the level of disrespect just reaches an absurd level, totally out of control. Verse 6 says, the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. All right. Um, now, you're probably thinking, what good reason could there possibly be for killing someone who invites you to a party that you already said you would go to? And the answer to that is, there is no good reason. <laughs> That's just as horrible as it sounds. It's, it's unjustifiable. It's terrible. I mean, imagine if you went through all the trouble of preparing an amazing wedding, you spent a ton of money, you invited all these people, uh, you sent out the invitations, and people filled out the little cards saying they wanted beef or chicken or fish, and then the day comes and no one shows up. Nobody. Because they, they just didn't feel like it. It's not like there was an earthquake or something like that. They just didn't feel like it. How devastating would that be? How insulting to be sitting in that empty venue on that day. 
And to make it even worse, imagine that you had planned to have drivers go out and pick up all your friends and family to bring them to the wedding, and half of those drivers never even showed up because your friends and family killed them when they, <laughs> when they arrived. So I, I want us to realize all that because I want us to see how much the king's reaction in verse 7 makes sense. Right? I want us to be able to feel why it makes sense that he was enraged and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. I mean, I realize it might bother us a little that the God character in this parable destroys and burns a city. Right? But I hope that we can see that the moral outrage makes sense. You know, moral outrage is not a terrible thing. I, mean, I, I bet that all of us at some point during this election process have felt moral outrage. <laughs> the thing is, we don't handle our moral outrage real well. But God knows exactly how to handle moral outrage appropriately. Um, so we need to be very careful to pay attention to Jesus' instructions about the importance of, you know, turning the other cheek and loving our neighbors and, and all of that. Okay? But moral outrage itself, anger at injustice, that's not a bad thing. You know, we need some of that. And not only does the moral outrage make sense, um, but it, this makes a lot of sense when we consider who Jesus is talking to when he tells this parable. If we go back to verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke to them again. So who's them? Well, it's very important to ask that kind of question because when we look at, look at a parable, how we understand it should have a lot to do with who's actually being spoken to. And if we look right before when this parable is told, it's very clear that who Jesus is speaking to is the religious establishment. He's speaking to the, to the Pharisees, uh, the, 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 um, the rulers of the day, the, the chief priests and the elders. Um, now, if you know anything about the religious establishment of Jesus' day, you know that they were trying to destroy Jesus. They were plotting to kill him. So he's talking to the people who wanted to have him arrested and killed. So when you think of it that way, the story makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And what he's trying to tell them is that their rejection of him is like the rejection of the king's wedding feast. And he's trying to get them to see what an incredible offense against God that is. Just a few verses before this, he told the religious leaders, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And that's what we see in this parable. Right? This is a a dramatic illustration of that. There's people who have been invited to the kingdom, but they reject that invitation, and so they lose the kingdom. But this parable also shows us the second part of that verse, which is that the kingdom will be given to other people. Verse 8 says, Then the king said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now these, I want us to realize how incredible these verses are here. These are amazing. You see what Jesus is saying, right? He's saying that the invitation to the wedding party of God is going out to everyone. You know how 
when you plan a wedding. You usually have a guest list, and you have to be a little selective about who's on that guest list. But this says that the king sent servants out to the street corners. Street corners. Now, we, we can miss the significance of that, because the street corners is actually kind of referring to what we might call the highways, which is the places where all the roads came together. So you would find in these places people traveling from other, from other nations, people different languages, different skin colors, all converging at the street corners. So when he says go out to the street corners, he's saying, you know, go out and find people from everywhere, all over the place. And then he also says, both good and bad. Both good and bad. You hear that? The invitation goes out to both good and bad. You know, everyone gets the invite. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, the invitation is going out to you. It's a really incredible thing. But this is very important. Okay? The invitation isn't enough to get you to the party. That's what the first group showed us, right? You have to come. And what that means is, if you sense God calling you into relationship with him, you have to respond. God is patient with us. I thank him for that. Thank goodness. But if we allow ourselves to be distracted from his invitation, like that first group, that's risky. Now, sometimes we sense God's invitation, uh, but we say, well, I'll come some other time. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll come after, you know, I don't know, after I have some fun when I'm older. Um, you know, maybe after I've gotten married and settled down. Maybe once my career isn't taking up so much of my time, then, then I'll come. Then I'll, then I'll focus on God. I'll think about God. But we really shouldn't do that. Now is the time to start walking toward the party. You know, the king now is saying the food is ready. Come on. Now's the time to come. Now there's one other thing that can keep us from the party besides coming. Uh, and we see it in these last few kind of scary verses. Um, it says... But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what is going on there? Well, on the surface, it's, it's kind of upsetting, isn't it? Because it seems like someone's getting kicked out of the party because they don't have nice enough clothes. Uh, which seems like a pretty arbitrary reason to kick somebody out. And besides, what do you expect when you invite people from the street corners, both good and bad? Don't you think you're going to get some people there who can't afford a nice suit? So on first glance, this sounds like the king is being cruel and petty. Uh, but I don't think that's what's going on here at all. Because here's the thing, we actually have every reason to believe that the king himself provided the guests with wedding clothes. Uh, and I have to give some credit to Pastor Tim Keller for helping me to realize this. Uh, but there's two main reasons uh, I, th I think we can conclude this. Uh, the first is that these people who were invited to the wedding, they didn't have a chance to get ready, right? Because they only got the second invitation, not the first one. The first one comes so that you have time to get ready. But they only got the second one. So if people were being pulled off the streets to go to a wedding, 
they didn't have time to get ready. They were just going in whatever they were wearing at the moment. Um, so unless the host provided them with clothes, they weren't gonna have it, any fancy wedding clothes. And then the second reason to think this is because when the man is questioned, why aren't you wearing wedding clothes, he's speechless. So why is he speechless? Well, if he had had a legitimate excuse, we would expect him to say it. You know, we would expect him to say something like, well, I'm sorry, sir, I, I don't have any wedding clothes and you just pulled me here off the street. So I, I didn't mean to be disrespectful, but I, I just, you know, I just came. But he doesn't say that, which suggests that he doesn't have a good excuse. Probably the only thing that he could have said would have been, well, I didn't want to wear it. And, you know, that's like something a little kid says. No, I, don't, I didn't want to wear it. Um, and because he refuses to wear the clothes that he's provided, he doesn't get to say. So <clears throat> he, doesn't, he doesn't say anything. He's speechless, and I think that's, that's important. So what does this all mean? Well, there's something that can get us kicked out of the party. Something that's symbolized here about what can keep us from being there. So what is it? Well, in order to answer that, I think that we have to think about it from the perspective of a culture where honor and shame are a really big deal. Uh, honor and shame are significant aspects of our culture today, but they were even more so in Jesus' day. And it would have been extremely shameful, extremely uh, dishonoring to show up at such a significant event for such a significant person in informal clothes. Uh, especially when those formal clothes had been provided for you, right? The king paid for those clothes. And so what this person is doing is, you know, it's off the charts disrespectful. And essentially what he is saying to the king is, I am totally fine just the way I am. I don't need your clothes and I don't want them. I'm fine. And that's the attitude that cuts us off from the party. Because if we want to enjoy God's banquet, both now and forever, we need to have the attitude that says, God, I need you to clothe me. I'm not even worthy of being here. The attitude that we need in order to be at the party and enjoy the party is the one that recognizes we are sinners. We're sinners in need of, in need of grace. And it's the attitude that recognizes that unless God covers us with his grace, we do deserve to be ashamed in his presence. Maybe you remember uh, way back in Genesis in the story of Adam and Eve. After Adam and Eve sin for the first time, uh, they feel shame for the first time. And maybe you remember that the way that shame manifests itself is that they're embarrassed that they're naked. And it says that God's presence comes and they hide. And when, when God says, why are you hiding? They say, well, we were afraid because we were naked. We were ashamed that we were naked. And what's going on there is that Adam and Eve are ashamed because they have a sense that they've sinned. Something's not right with them. They don't feel right being totally exposed before God. So they feel this, this need to hide. Uh, and, and they're right to feel that way, that they have done wrong, and that they have something to hide. They're right to feel that. But God loves them even so. And uh, you might remember it says that God himself made garments for them to wear. I mean, so he wants to cover their shame. He wants to clothe them. 
And he does that right in the beginning. And God wants to cover all of our shame now, too. Uh, he wants us to be able to be in his presence and have peace. And he's paid the price through Jesus Christ's death on the cross in order for that to be possible. But if we feel no need for his grace, uh, if we feel like we can just do it on our own, if we feel like we deserve to be accepted to his party just as we are, then we don't get to enjoy the party. So if you need a quick summary to take home and remember what the final conclusion is, I'd express it like this. God invites us to the party just as we are. But if we think we deserve that, we'll never get to enjoy it. So I think the thing that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, do I assume that I deserve to be part of God's kingdom? And do I recognize how much in need of grace I really am? You know, last week, we talked about the Beatitudes and how the Beatitudes should influence uh, how we treat each other during the election and, and how we vote. And it's been convicting for me this week to, to realize personally just how hard it is to live those Beatitudes out consistently. Um, to be humble, to be contrite, to be gentle, to be a peacemaker. And, you know, all those things sound nice in theory, but practicing them is always a different story. So, we all need grace, big time. And I don't mean to close on a downer, uh, but the parable does kind of close on a downer, <laughs> uh, which is that we, we need to recognize our own inadequacy. Our own inadequacy. Um, we need to recognize our need to be clothed. We need to recognize our own sin. But here's the positive side. How great is it that the only thing that can really keep us from God's wedding party is insisting that we deserve to be there? I think that's good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the invitation to your party has gone out to the street corners, uh, that it's gone out to both good and bad. We thank you, Lord, that the kingdom of heaven is a party and that it is the thing that we long for uh, deep down. And God, we pray that um, the attitudes that uh, prevent us from being able to experience that party, uh, both now and in the future, um, we pray that you would eliminate those from us, God. We pray that we would recognize our, our deep need for you, um, that you would help us to be the, the kind of people that have an attitude that, that glorifies you, Lord, uh, that, that gives you joy. And uh, we thank you for your word as always, Lord. We pray that you would use it to transform us and shape us and make us into people who embody your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.